Greetings and welcome to our bi-monthly news crossover with one of the most informative programs in left media, Left Reckoning. We've done cross streams with the Left Reckoning fellows before, but we decided it is always so much fun and informative that we needed to make it a regular occurrence. Please note that there are links in the description for those of you who are new to each channel, so please subscribe. And if you are unfamiliar with Matt and David, subscribe to their channel. Additionally, if you feel inclined and have the means, please consider becoming a patron. Both of us offer exclusive content to our patrons, and this helps us maintain in, <laughs> remain independent. And more importantly, it prevents us from selling out. Speaking of selling out, Matt and David actually have some new merchandise on their Left Reckoning website. Can you pull that up for me? Oh, no. Bam! Get a Left Reckoning hat. I got a Left Reckoning tank top. I have to go pick it up at the post office, which is going to take me forever to get to because I have to go pick it up in your in your Americas. But I'm very excited. I'll, I'll have it on next week as I'm also advertising our, our live show. And let me remind everyone that after we've finished here, we'll be heading to our patron-only champagne room where we will be recapping Deep State Cuba's wedding and time-honored Kelowna Public School tradition of kidnap night. That's right. Nothing prepared Deep State Cuba for Iraqi black-bagging dissidents like the Kelowna public school system. <laughs> Cuba's not going to like that. Oh, well, he's on his honeymoon. Who cares? That being said, let me bring in the Thursday night news crew. I miss this guy. I haven't been on stream with him. It seems like in forever. He is my homie, my dog, my co-host and extraordinaire, the Pascal Robert. Yeah, we had to miss out on the Mau Mau Hour. Uh, it will yesterday. be rescheduled for next week. We'll be doing it next week. Also, tomorrow night is movie night. And we'll be watching a movie Pascal hasn't seen. Or M2 Sant either. Speaking of M2 Sant. Let's introduce, introduce, introduce the faceless, headless voice of reason, producer extraordinaire, chat moderator extraordinaire, M. Toussaint. Hello, hello. I would like to start today off with the land acknowledgement. Oh, I would like to acknowledge my landlord <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, let my landlord know. I got you. I got you. It's coming. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> Is your landlord like watching the show? Fucking. Uh, you got all that time to podcast with your friends. You had no time to pay me. That's right. You don't need a computer. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the roaches are complaining. Jesus. And let's introduce our friends.
from Left Reckoning, coming all the way live from the good part of Texas, David Griscom. How's everyone doing tonight? We're doing well. Uh, the hair and the shirt looks looks fabulous. You look like uh, one part uh, outlaw country celebrity, one part uh, 80s yacht rock icon. Ooh, so I, I can do that. Kenny Loggins and Waylon Jennings. All made right. a, made I'll a song. play that game. That sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's favorite North Dakotan. Who, who doesn't say the North Dakotan words? I don't know. Do we have to get Matt drunk? Like, what is it that gets Matt to say North Dakotan phrases? I don't know North Dakotan phrases. Okay. Matt, Matt does say milk. Like, he says it funny? Milk. He says instead of milk, he says milk. He says like bag e? instead of bag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not from. You only get that accent. In all fairness, you only get the accent closer to Fargo. Inland, he's you know, mad. I, he's he's mad. Get him on there. All right. Please welcome Matt Lack. Big Matt Lack. Yeah. I, I say bag or uh, I say coat. People say when I say O words like show and coat. But say, the say pop or soda. You know, I think I said pop when I was younger, but not a whole lot. That's kind of out of rotation. But, Jason, you're right. There's a split. There's the uh, Norwegians on the eastern side of North Dakota, and that's where you get the, the Fargo, don't you know? And I actually, I have some aunts that do kind of have a little bit of that. It's more recognizable to me now that I've left the area. Uh, but my side, the w- west side is all like Germans, and we all have this low, bassy voice that where we mumble half the time. <laughs> it's it when you go to North Dakota if you're not familiar with North Dakota and you and if you actually go there and you know too many people that vacation there oh uh, I encourage them uh I mean I have because I work there in such <laughs> certain situations like I don't really want to go back unless I have to um there is a huge divide in the language and it really shocked me because you know you watch the movie Fargo and you assume everyone talks like that then you go to places like Wisconsin or or, or northern Minnesota and that's yeah. where that accent the, the the Swedish people you're talking about the Norwegians you're talking about where it's so thick you're like I don't those aren't words yeah you're not yeah. talking English right now and I don't know a whole lot of North Dakota phrases either like specifically North Dakota shut phrases. the front door it's more midwestern stuff right yeah it's a whole region that right. if I put you guys all culturally, room, culturally North Dakota, like people always have those debates and people say like North Dakota and South Dakota are the plains, but culturally they look to the East Midwest more than like Denver or like yeah. the West basically. Cause like, what do people from Denver sound like? Yeah. <laughs> no, I have no idea. Racist. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> thin air but okay <laughs> <laughs> that's all they sound like no i don't uh, th- that's one of those places like california where i don't think there's a real accent a denver accent yeah i can't think of a denver accent there's a what california is the accent? accent what is oh, that yeah. california accent Polly Shore. Polly Shore. <laughs> yep <laughs> yep that's not real 
Well, when it they say Valley real. Girl accent, that's that's the valley in California, right? That's the San Fernando Valley is where it was yeah. supposed to be, which is like a super suburb. And it comes out of mall culture. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean... <laughs> That reminds me of your jacket from the other day. <laughs> what are you talking about? Jason was Jason. We we did a a video messenger thing on Facebook, and Jason was wearing this crazy Debbie Gibson jacket, <laughs> denim jacket, straight from the mall. <laughs> you said I had a get lost in your eyes jacket. <laughs> I think we're alone now, jacket. I think Fucked we're up. alone now. <laughs> Jesus. Well, Hilarious. speaking of being alone, you know, uh, you, sorry, you brought up Debbie Gibson. There's like this footage, and I'm not gonna bring it up, but uh, Debbie Gibson for MTV. My school when I was this is in like the 80s, maybe 90s, uh, 88. So before I was born, but uh, MTV there's some competition in my uh, hometown one, and Debbie Gibson played a concert in the gym. So. <laughs> Wait, you're not? Aren't you from Williston? Or am I tripping? I'm from Mandan. Oh, you're from Mandan. That's in the central, central part of the state. Yep. Um, who's? Is there anybody special from Mandan? Uh, Talker Pudwell, a boxer, is from Mandan. You just made that name up. That's a Mike Tyson nope. punch and shit. <laughs> That's a real guy. That's how you fight after Piston Honda? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Always get knocked out by Tucker Pudwell. Yeah, I'd say he's probably more famous than me as far as people from my home. Because <laughs> when you go to Williston, there's just big ass signs that Phil Jackson's from there. Yes, <laughs> I think he only went to high school there too. I don't. I think like the extent he. I think he was actually lived as a child in Montana. For maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, they're yeah. right next to each other. He balled in Williston. Which is, yeah, yeah, there's like there's signs all over that high school and it's not like Williston is the biggest town as well. No. Um also I want to remind everyone watching um that October 23rd at the Terragram Ballroom we will be doing our live show. Give them a revolution. Wherever you're watching or listening to this show there are links in the description to get tickets. It's going to be awesome. a hell of a lot of fun. I'm I'm stoked. I mean, we got a lot of cool things planned. The guest list is, I mean, it's a who's who. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be a night to remember. It's gonna be a fun Hollywood party. I'm getting all people the star, all you celebrity stars of the left. There's gonna be celebrities <laughs> everywhere, Pascal. You basically a shadow one. government. On, on stage. <laughs> yeah, a shadow <laughs> government. Oh, a putsch. You, <laughs> you you have no idea, Pascal, who is gonna be there. Kardashian might even show up. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. We got Kim. Would you be mad if Kim Kardashian showed up and I was just hanging out with her and I was going to be her new kind of Not at all. You know, she, you won't be the first black man who's socially crushed. So, wow. What if we just have a, a friend, a friendly relationship where I just teach her things about uh, entrepreneurship? <laughs> about entrepreneurship. <laughs> entrepreneurship. <laughs> <laughs> that's my goal because apparently kim kardashian flies southwest so oh, wow I kept did you say she owns southwest airlines no oh, yeah. she flies southwest <laughs> i i think there's one more chance that she owns southwest airlines no apparently apparently like she legit flies southwest 
That's they all do. Funny. I mean, private jets are. Uh, they got some kind of deal. <laughs> yeah, they just buy the whole plane out. So it's just. You like, know, you know who I would see it like not infrequently when I'd fly from uh, Austin to uh, D.C. when I went to college in, in D.C. Call Rove. On South no, yeah, like a lot. Whoa, <laughs> Man, that would freak me out. Yeah, that was something else. I know I had to take a double take too, and then you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I, funny. Uh, that's funny because you're not also telling us, like, yeah, I saw him and I told him he was a bitch. Like, you know, people always say, if I saw so and so, it's like, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> what, was, what was I gonna do? <laughs> If I saw him on a plane, I'd be like, if I saw him on a plane, I'd be like, damn, I'm on a justifiable target right now. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) That's hella funny. If I saw Carl Rover, I'd be like, I see what you do there. I understand the hustle. I understand the hustle. (laughs) Especially if you see him in coach. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, exactly. Someone said they drove Colin Powell in a limo once. Well, what the hell was that like driving Colin Powell in a limo? Wow. Did he give you like a pep talk? That was not what I thought you were going like to say. A black guy te- pep talk? I can see Colin Powell giving a black guy pep talk. My father drove you? a limo <laughs> as a prank. He's Jamaican. Uh, what would you do if you saw Colin Powell uh, at the airport? Would you approach Colin? Well, he's dead now, so. It's true. I'd be like, Colin, my life massacre, big man. My life massacre. My massacre. Remember the days. Like, you look at him and just, my lie and do this. The wink and the nod, like, we know. My life <laughs> Yellow cake. I remember you and the yellow cake. I see you. I see you. I see you. <laughs> That would be the funny prank to just elaborate their worst crimes would be like I was a yeah, fan that's, of I all think that. That, <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> that should be our thing. Like if we ever run into like right wing fucking horrible people, be like Kissinger, whole oh, word, word. Like, Vietnam, damn. You know, Shay, baby, you the man. You the real, you the real MVP. Mm-hmm. How do you live forever, you and Keith Richards? Uh, but let's pivot to the news stories of the day it's back it's back I've I've missed you guys we pre-recorded all these shows Um, I'm actually going to pre-record more shit tomorrow (laughs) but now Pascal you wanted to discuss the elections in Italy they've elected their first female prime minister uh, a giant leap forward for gender equality might be a giant step forward for fascism i know what's, what's, what's going be, on over there pascal what seems to be a potential interesting take on what intersectional feminism can bring forth has had some really rather fascinating consequences in terms of the elections in italy where we had Gian Giorgia Meloni, currently the victor ahead of the Brotherhood Italia, Fratelli Italia Party. Now, for those who are not familiar with the Fratelli Italia Party, it's basically the one of the long-standing connected fascisto 
assumed parties, according to the uh, the allegations of many who are spectators in Italian Italian politics. Miss Martelli is a hard Maloney's Miss Maloney, excuse me, is a hard right winger, uh, very conservative in her politics, and it seems to be a very very playing much by the same script that we've seen in these types of elections of Victor Orban, of Marine Le Pen types, hardcore anti-immigrant, very, very skeptical of the EU, very skeptical of, quote, unquote, the international finance, very skeptical of the, quote, unquote, globalists, if you will. And one of the way in which many of those uh, leaders have developed in terms of their popularity is to frame the economic crises of their country in a way in which they blame the depleted resources on the encroachment of foreigners into the land of the homeland. They also are using questions about the LGBTQ community, threatening family values, Christian values, things of that nature. Some people have deemed this type of politics to be fascistic, crypto-fascistic, quasi-fascistic, some have deemed it to be a nationalist. Either way is irrelevant to me to whether or not it is definitely fascist or not, because that doesn't mean that it cannot be right wing. And it's definitely right wing. Whether or not it's fascistic or not does not stop its operational capacity to become an authoritarian version of neoliberalism. Because as much as people are talking about the identitarian ways in which these governing coalitions have been rising in Europe, no one has demonstrated that they are any way a deviation from the neoliberal capitalist order that is plaguing most of these European countries. What they want to do is scapegoat the problems of capitalism on immigrants, transgenders, and gays instead of talking about political economy like those who are more interested in social democracy and democratic socialism. But also one of the things that's interesting about uh, Ms. Maloney is that she has... Uh, she has been a big supporter of Ukraine and is not so much whistling in support of Russia, which is another thing that's an anomaly for those right-wing forces that have been coming into power in Europe. So people are a little unsure in terms of how she's going to play her cards with the Russian and Ukrainian election. But one of the things that I think is very important to realize is that there has some people are saying that fascism is back in Europe. I don't necessarily think it's productive to whether to challenge whether it's fascism or not. But one of the things I know is that the reactionary right with the zealotry and their anti-immigrant posturing is very much on the rise in Europe. And I don't see a left having any kind of gumption or power to challenge this rise anywhere on the horizon. You make a good point, Pascal. I do have a quote to read from the story that you read. Miss Maloney, head of the far-right party, Brothers of Italy, has kept out of view since her election win when she promised to govern for all Italians. The question is who will fill the key jobs and whether they will go to other parties in her right-wing alliance. Matteo Salvini, for example, was known to covet the interior ministry. The head of the far-right league had the job in 2019 when he barred rescue boats from carrying migrants from entering Italian ports. Ms. Maloney has likewise promised a tough response to irregular migration. 
but reports in Rome suggest Mr. Salvini will miss out on reprising his role. One of the things I find very interesting about her is that she is multilingual. Four languages. Four languages. Uh, she's quite the speech giver. Um, and she's she, been active in politics since a very young age. She demagogues. <laughs> yeah, and like post-fascist uh, youth clubs. Exactly. Yes. She speaks I mean, English I... too. So I'm waiting for her to have a chat with MAGA. <laughs> She's already coming. She's she's met with Steve Bannon already. She appeared at some of the uh, CPAC functions. Has she? The Republicans are already, listen, let's make this clear. The Republicans are already making international connections with these rising reactionary Mm -hmm. right-wing figures. Mm -hmm. In fact, they're trying trying to frame the quote-unquote globalists, if you will, as the center of all things problematic and bad and that politics is resonating with a segment of people in America who are tired of COVID lockdowns, people in America who are tired of, you know, NATO, the encroach people in Europe who are tired of the encroachment of the EU without getting the economic benefits of the EU, feeling that their, their sovereignty has been lost, feeling that they're having foreigners decide their immigration policy is problematic. So there are challenges to this kind of international coalition of parties that is being developed that unfortunately is only being addressed by these reactionary right wing. But my question is why can't the left have answers to these questions that are much these questions that are much more salient than saying kick the immigrants out, blame the blame the Africans or see it's the LGBTQ that's the problem. I mean, I think one thing to note about her too is that there was all of these like fawning um, profiles of her and certainly a lot of right wingers were very much in love with her and a lot of these like new um right-wing social democracy people uh in the states were like oh my god because she gave her speech after after winning and was saying something along the lines of we're finally going to do something about the global financial interests that are preventing us from being able to live yeah. speculators thank you um they're letting that you know preventing us from being able to to live and you look at what's actually happened since she's been in power i mean the first thing that she's done has been cutting payments that go to jobless benefits that go to uh, poor unemployed Italians. Right? right. So like the, the economic, you know, I don't like the word economic populism. I will just say, but like the kind of pro worker policies, pro pro, you know, normal people, working people policies. I mean, it's very clear from the get go that this is going to be a huge gift actually um, to those kind of entrenched, uh, you know, rich people. And I think, I think most people watching this show, know um, this already not to be bamboozled by the talk of some of these new right-wing figures. But it just is always amazing when they almost immediately turn face and start talking one language publicly and then almost immediately um, start giving out, um, you know. My position is that I would almost respect them if they demonstrated that they were willing to be an alternative to to either austerity or neoliberalism. And I haven't seen them come to power and govern as anything but an authoritarian version of either austerity or, or neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, Giannis Varoufakis basically made the point that there, um, uh, Mr. Maloney's a uh, good plan B for the Europeans and NATO establishment as new prime minister has already given her backing in two key policy areas. Unlike uh, Matteo Salvini and his party, which crashed electorally, Maloney has already fully subscribed to the hard NATO line of unconditional military involvement alongside Ukraine. I'd be curious how salient that is as an issue in 
Europe. I know when I was in Madrid, basically at the start of the invasion, a lot of Ukraine flags and like people were very, um, uh, you know, supportive of Ukraine. Um, second, uh, Fakas continued again, unlike both Salvini and his former co-governors, the five-star move from Alonia's renounced her earlier disagreements with the Eurozone architecture and the economic policies dictated by Brussels and uh, the uh, ECB. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I think like, it doesn't answer your question, Pascal. I think that's a much harder question to answer. I mean, I, I think the the way that certain people tried to project onto her a, a politics that wasn't there was what uh, uh, bamboozled me about Listen, here. Or what is clear is that she's very adept, Ms. Maloney, at, at shape-shifting her politics to fit an audience depending on the needs of the moment. And she's not stupid. This woman is not ignorant. And she's not the typical kind of like Trumpian demagogue that's going to get caught up in words and get it caught up into nonsensical buffoonery. She seems like she's very, 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 very uh, uh, orchestrated in terms of getting her agenda put forward. And she's not lazy either. So I'm just questioning what what's going to come forth of this and why is there no left response? Well, this sounds uh, very frightening. Is this the one thing that people talked about uh, post-Trump? That you're going to get something much worse that actually is cognizant. So, I mean, I'm, I'm using that to put it in context for people to kind of understand the situation that Pascal and, and everyone is describing on the screen is that here you have a, a politician that actually knows how to use somewhat populist rhetoric, um, but actually has an agenda that you feel, I, I'm assuming everybody on the screen feels, that they can actually push through. Hmm. That'll be, you know, harmful for the people of Italy. I, I agree with you, Jason. It's, it's, it's. Listen, if we got something like that in the United States, you know, it, it could take that just kind of MAGA nonsense to a whole other level. Well, I mean, this is like this is one of those things too, where I think recognizing where the the right wing movements that have been successful, both in the United States and across Europe, um, where where that comes from, and and it comes from a general general dissatisfaction i think across the board in a lot of different countries with the center right center left like neoliberal consensus i think that 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 model is like a voting block has been like very significantly uh broken and then the question is okay well then who fills the void and for most of the reporting that i've seen so far on on the elections it's like you know there's probably about a 20 percent portion of the voters who voted for her because they're like oh you know maybe we can do the roman salute again and things like that <laughs> you know and then you know there's gradients there but a lot of people i think are voting there and this is not to say that it's good um it's just to recognize what the situation is a lot of people are sort of taking this like let's give it a go like we've done we've done these kind of parties uh we tried um the five star movement um, you know, we've tried all these different things and, and nothing really changed for for towns. And the fact is that it's not going to change um, without one, like a significant working class movement and two, uh, without being able to deal with the European Union, which I think, you know, Americans have like a very rosy eyed idea about what the European Union is. They think of it as like, oh, this is cosmopolitanism. What it really is, is it's, it's about economic hegemony for the northern countries, which is why, um, you know, there's been such a devastation in countries like Italy and Greece and Spain and Portugal um, and for working class communities across even even, um, you know, the northern European countries. So, like, you have this economic basically vacuum that's like sucking out the livelihood of, of working people. Then you have a political um, you know, center that has collapsed. Well, what is able to fill the void? Well, 
um, you can't if you don't have a movement that's one man that is like ready to go that has been organizing for a long time. Um, then you know it creates opportunities for groups like this, uh, the Brotherhood of Italy, right? Which just comes out of a lot of as she did comes out of a lot of like kind of like post-fascist real organizing that generations of people have been mm-hmm. participating in this kind of politics, and it's a politics that is very very amenable to the wealthy and the powerful, right? And that's also the thing in the United mm-hmm. States too with Trump, right? It's like with Trump was like certainly like something was created as like a media spectacle, but there's not like a Trump movement in the sense of like organizing, right? They're, they have voters. They have people they want to win, but it's not something that came out of like grassroots organizing. It was very top down. And how are you able to build a top down movement like that? Well, it's like if you have a lot of money and influence and people in power who are willing to to roll the dice with that, then it creates a great opportunity for the right. And I think, um, you know, the the absence of the left is a huge part of, of the factor here, but it's more, I think, on the lack of like organizing, the lack of trust that a lot of working class communities have uh, with like the left um, that that allows these kind of far right movements that sort of seem like, oh, they came out of nowhere. Well, it's like, you know, one, there's some groundwork that's been done before. And two, they can get the backing of powerful people to support those movements, which is really what you need, um, you know, in the formula. We don't get that on our side. The only we have to basically be able to be more organized and more structured than any kind of right wing movement is because we're not going to get, you know, big time billionaire daddies, uh, you know, helping us out. What about George Soros? I thought he was the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's all. Uh, <laughs> all now George Soros, the one true left. I mean, like, that's the, one of the most wild things I, I, you know, I, I hear. On, even though him and Trump were partnered together, you know, uh, the housing corruption that happened post 2008. <laughs> But um, I, I do have a, a serious question or and or comment. Um, a lot of the articles that I've seen, I haven't read too much about it as I've been d- driving an enormous amount of time, um, that this is fascist light, a return to Mussolini. I'll ask you guys, I'll ask both chats, um, oh. is this a return to fascism or is this just kind of the future of this kind of politics like i think again in the in the american sense trump was literally bad for business at a certain point he literally divided uh corporate spaces to the point where there was a business class consolidation as well trying to get him uh out of office Mm -hmm. uh, even post the tax cuts so what happens when you have a politician like this that actually knows how to talk the talk that's It's a very good question. I think that there is a martial nature to the Mussolini and Hitler post-World War I that distinguishes that type of actual clear fascism from the more anti-immigrant rhetorical type that we're seeing in the contemporary moment. I don't think that in in a period of time where we have not had conscriptive military to the extent that we had in World War I, that we're going to necessarily have that same type of fascist moment. But here's my position. Just because it's not Mussolini and Hitler doesn't mean it can't be as noxious, damaging, and dangerous. Yeah. And I, I think on the fascism historical point, I mean, like, think about, like, you know, I think in the U.S. especially, like, we use fascism to to paint a lot of different perspectives from just, like, right-wing reactionary um, you know, to like straight up brown shirts or, you know, neo-Nazis. I think it's important to realize historically why fascism was useful to global capital, right? 
you know, it, it was useful to global capital because fascism was a way to create an actually like uh, on a kind of material politics level, an almost incoherent base of, of support, right? From having everyday working people with the elites. And you create these imagined communities like the nation or the race or whatever to sort of mobilize people. And fascism was a great tool to smash um, the the communist movement. I think like one thing to remember here is like, it's not like a um, just a random cool fact, for example, that Mussolini was a, was a major uh, player in the early Italian communist movement. You know, in fact, when Mussolini went fascist, Lenin um, has like a letter. I can't remember who he's sending it to saying, oh, we've lost Mussolini. That's a huge loss to the work yeah. the global wor global workers movement. And like the point here is to say is that like um, that's what fascism was doing. It was actually pulling people who were doing a certain kind of politics to then become, you know, the the hammer that was to break the labor um, and, and, and the socialist movements in, in, in those countries. And like. So the point is not to say like because I think when people hear people debating is it fascism out there they're like oh are they saying this is good or is this bad right it's not that yeah. it's recognizing what these historical forces were and and seeing that like what what she's going to be useful for is um, delivering a really nasty pill um, that has to be delivered in Italy according to the people who run um, you know th that that society I'm talking about the European Union in general which is going to be a harsh austerity war on 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 working people and in a situation that it's already really dire I mean she's taking away benefits from like the unemployed and the hungry I mean that's like as much cut as you can get that's not people living it up right um, and that's what they that's what that's what um, you know capital wants in this moment they want you know a broad-based austerity and you know would they have preferred it to continue to be delivered by Draghi's um, or like these kind of technocrats in Italy who have been in power for a while um, over at least the past like 10, 15 years um, or at least influence. Um, I think might prefer that, but she's also great if she's going to come in there and say, we're going to clean up the budget, um, you know, and give it a little blood and soil maybe to get people a little <laughs> riled up as she's doing it. I mean, that's basically what it is. Well, uh, moving on. And for those of you just joining us, welcome to the Revolutionary Reckoning bi-monthly news show where Pascal and I from This Is Revolution team up with Matt and David from Left Reckoning and do a more evergreen news rundown of the stories of the day um, that go a little deeper, I think. Uh, Matt, just last time you were on, Pascal discussed the dire situation with water in Jackson, uh, Mississippi. And this week, you're also discussing Mississippi, but you're discussing um, Mississippi native and Hall of Fame NFL quarterback Brett Favre, a volleyball stadium and the state's welfare funds. What's going on in Mississippi? Um, I hate to use the word corruption because sometimes it oversimplifies things, but uh, really, what is going on in Mississippi? Yeah, so, well, first to set a little bit of the context, this is the uh, population percentage below the poverty line uh, source, the American Community Survey 2016 to 2020. As you can see, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and Mississippi both very bad. In fact, the top five, Puerto Rico. You get your mouse over there because we're dealing with people that have American public school educations. Yes, here we go. So look at, look at the red spots. Right next to the boot. Um, uh, if you look at the top five uh, states in terms of the highest rates of poverty, uh, well, I'll say Puerto Rico on here, but Mississippi, number one, uh, 19.58%. Uh, and uh, that's the context for 
this story, which I don't know if we touched on on this uh, show at all, but um, Mississippi Today has been really covering this, uh, the reporter there, Anna Wolf. But here's a new uh, development in the story this week. Former Governor Phil Bryant moves to keep text private while denying he helped channel welfare funds to Brett Favre's volleyball stadium. And former Governor Phil Bryant's latest court funds objecting to the subpoena of Nancy News attorney. Bryant is releasing several new text messages. And let's get into what these text messages uh, show. Um, he's publicly produced dozens of messages in an attempt to prove he's unaware of what Favre was trying to do. The court documents filed Friday come within a court battle between Bryant and the attorney for the nonprofit founder Nancy New over whether Bryant should have to produce any more of his communication regarding the welfare-funded volleyball stadium. In response to state civil complaint against her, New alleged in July. New is who Favre was working with with these funds to get these uh, ta- uh, temporary assistance to needy families funds through the nonprofit. New alleged in July that she had the approval and direction from the governor and other welfare officials to make the allegedly illegal purchases. The five related payments reflect a, reflect a small portion of a scheme to misspend $77 million in funds from the federal temporary assistance for needy families programming during the last four years of Bryant's administration. Most of the money flowed through two nonprofits uh, who were running a state-sanctioned anti-poverty program called Families First for Mississippi, which Favre references in text to Bryant. We are going to get there. This was a great meeting, Bryant texted Favre in September of 2019, directly after they had met with Christopher Fries, the welfare director who replaced Davis after Davis was suspected of defrauding the agency. Mm-hmm. But we have to follow the law. I am too old for federal prison. Uh, smiley face, sunglasses emoji. Uh, is parentheses wow. There. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, texts wow. indicate that during this time in late uh, 2019, Bryant had shifted normal course until audit has completed uh, its work. I'm staying out of all decisions that the agency will make. Now, this is just a note again. These are texts recently released by Bryant, um, his attorneys. So yeah. these are to make him look good. So this is him saying I was I once that audit process came in, despite me saying, you know, the smiley face emoji. I also said, you know, I need to be a little bit hands off. According to the filing, Favre first reached out to Bryant about fundraising in April of 2017. Deanna and I are building a volleyball facility on campus, and I need your influence somehow to get donations or sponsorships. Obviously, Southern has no money, so I'm hustling to get it raised. Favre texted the governor. Bryant responded, we will have that thing built before you know it. Mm -hmm. A little bit later, uh, this is when Brett Favre realizes that he's not coming up with the, uh, the money. Um, I'm on my way and we, they need, they need um, the okay from the governor um, for these uh, TAN of funds. Uh, I'm on my way and I'm sure I won't have time or privacy enough to speak about this. So I want you to know how much I love Nancy New and John Davis. Again, those are the, uh, Nancy New is the leader of the nonprofit. Favre texted Bryant, according to the fine. What they have done for me and Southern Miss is amazing. Her family first is incredible. That's a nonprofit, and she cares. We were planning to do the workshops and youth clinics in the new volleyball facility with her family's first kids. And also, I paid for three-fourths of the volleyball facility, and the rest was a joint project with her and John, which was saving me $1.8 million. I was informed today that she may not be able to fund her part, I and we need your help very badly, Governor, and sorry to even bring this up. Um, and I'll uh, just note, just because it's in the story, Bryant says that that was misleading about the what how much Brett Favre paid. Later in May of 2018, Favre reached out again to Governor Bryant for help constructing lockers for the facility. I'm still trying to save money on the V-Ball facility, Favre texted. Favre even suggested the prison industry possibly as a builder. 
Oh. So uh, it's just interesting to see how these guys think, right? Like I'm, I'm coming up light. I, I, I told my daughter I'd, you know, have a volleyball stadium. And this is all at Southern Miss, his alma mater. Yep. Okay. Um, and then this is where uh, Bryant. Uh, well, I'll just do this. I've asked Brett not to do these things he's doing and to seek funding from state agencies. So th- to me, this looks a little bit like Bryant's people are trying to like pour it back onto Brett because he those texts where he's you know saying I'm too old for jail <laughs> don't look good, um, right? So he says I've asked Brett not to do the things he's doing, not seek funding from state agencies and the legislature for the volleyball facility. Bennett texted Bryant in late January 2020, according to the fine. As you know, IHL has a process for how we request and get approval for the projects and what he's doing is outside the guidelines. I'll see for the umpteen time if we can get him to stand down. Um, uh, the bottom line is he personally guaranteed the project on his word and handshake we proceeded. It's time for him to pay up. Uh, it's just really that simple. Um, and, you know, you, you said that thing about corruption. And, I, I, I you know, mentioning Lula's going to beat Bolsonaro hopefully soon. And, mm-hmm. you know, remember the hypothetical of like, let's say Lula was guilty of any kind of corruption, which he wasn't um, mm-hmm. with regards to property. Well, it's like to me, if you like literally cut poverty to the point that uh, people's uh, heights are improved, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. you can get like a beachside condo. I'm not going to begrudge <laughs> you that. Right. <laughs> like, well, I mean, um, just, isn't it, isn't it kind of inherent in the way we, we do government, right? There's always going to be a relationship between um, private capital and public uh, funds. Yeah. And I think like that, if you acknowledge that and then say like, Lula does like we're going to cut these things instead of you know exploit them like we do would say like build some lockers with some prison labor right like when you're when when you're making sure that you keep those sorts of uh forms of exploitation of of, of labor and just mm-hmm. i mean uh, money for poor people when you when you are making those things worse then you then 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 corruption is a problem for me well the, the prison labor is even kind of an interesting uh argument i don't want to say argument but conversation piece because you have the closing of susanville prison that's supposed to happen in california and that's where the firefighters are there's uh firefighters that that kind of work the front lines in these big forest fires that you guys hear about that destroy places like paradise and stuff like that so where are those firefighters going to go and there's people that are like kind of complaining about that but no one's complaining about the fact that this is prison labor that makes pennies on the dollar and they literally work in the front lines. And there's even horrible stories about people that uh, worked in these, these fires, the hand to hand with the fire department, helping save lives. And then they got deported after they were done literally serving all their time and had to sit in, uh, facilities for that as well. So uh, does a Brett Favre like character, can they spin something like prison labor as a overall public good? Like, hey, we're giving these guys jobs. They're actually earning money, learning a trade. Um, we have job placement for them when they get out. That's kind of the frightening part about the, the exploitation of public funds um, when we talk about uh, liberal democracy. And I think ultimately this is, this is a lot of the work that comes out of um, – um, uh, the end of the end of history. If you guys ever read that book by the Bunga Bunga guys, or even or even had them on your show, um, they they talk a lot about uh, 
the idea of liberal democracy in it of itself, corruption is kind of inherent. And I think the, the, through the American lens of what corruption is, um, like I was having a conversation with, with my, my neighbor that lives in the front and we don't have Uber. I found him. We don't have Uber in Baja. The governor in Baja got rid of Uber, but we have our own taxis here and we have a bus system here. That's actually re- really, really inexpensive. And, uh, my neighbor was saying that he had met someone that drove Uber and they were like, the government is corrupt and that's why they don't want Uber. I was like, well, I don't know. I'm not going to say there's not corruption in the Mexican government. <laughs> Even in the, on the state level, I'm not going to say anything as insane as that. But, you know, think of it from the standpoint of what happens when a company like Uber comes in and anyone can drive it. There is no regulation of how many cars. I mean, Matt, you live in New York, David. You just left New York. I think Uber has an office in Austin. Uh, Dave, you know, uh, what happens when there is no regulation for how many cars should and can drive? What happens when everyone's concentrated in the big city to make a couple bucks over the weekend? Um, what happens when you have that much power to start exploiting labor? Um, but we never say the word corruption when we think about, you know, Uber's relationship with municipalities. Yeah, I mean, t- totally. And like the way that a lot of these companies come into town and, and they start, you know, dictating stuff to the people. I mean, in Austin, they tried to um, block the <laughs> they tried to they tried to make uh, Uber go through basically um, basic kind of background checks in the early days. And it was something that was voted on by the city. And Uber dropped an insane amount of money, like an insane amount of money to basically try to override um, the voice of, uh, of, of the people on that. And people in Austin uh, voted against them, which was really exciting. Um, but then, you know, Uber gets in, start chatting. And for a couple of years, there was an Uber or Lyft in Austin. And there was like different weird rideshare apps, you know, that were very bad, if I'm being honest, um, that did the background checks. Buddy um, ride. Yeah, you know, like literally <laughs> stuff like that. You know? Um but you know, basically, you know, basically, Uber was able to weasel themselves back in afterwards, and like, you know, this whatever. Like, Uber Lyft is just one example of, of something that happens all across this country. And the point is not to sort of laugh off corruption as it exists in other places, but it's to recognize that in the United States, we actually have just a very formalized way to do that that doesn't exist Philanthropy. In, in other countries. Philanthropy, Oof. campaign Oof. donations. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, campaign donations, changing the way, kind of changing the news landscape also, too. Um, You know, in the 90s, uh, when Bill Clinton deregulates the fact that uh, pharmaceutical companies can advertise to the public at large instead of just doctors, really changes the way, coupled with Citizens United, changes the way that these companies can then pay for advertising on cable news, which has an older viewing base. And attacking that viewing base with all of these ads for dick pills and uh, arthritis medication constantly, really, you have to wonder, oh, maybe this is why we don't have these conversations about why we don't have socialized medicine. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't see as many uh, advertisements as I used to because I'm streaming shit. But when I do like watch a sports game or something. The amount of times you're advertised a fucking medication that you are not probably like, why am I learning about all these medications? It's insane. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I really, it's a really dystopian. 
Yeah, you're, you're yellowing of the toenails. <laughs> There's some sad guy walking on the beach with like boots because he can't enjoy it with his yellow toe. Yeah, <laughs> rectal. It may cause rectal bleeding, but you won't have yellow toenails. Oh, that's the oh, thing God. I do love about. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Empty Son. <laughs> I know you might have had some more thoughts that's on rectal okay, bleeding. One thing that is like truly like beautifully I American. One thing that is just truly um, beautiful about like the American culture is that like, you know, Europeans always make the point about like how crazy it is to see our, um, you know, pharmaceutical ads and stuff like that, which is absolutely true. But also being very true to the American state, it's also so highly regulated that like five minutes of the commercial is just like going through things like rectal bleeding and like infertility and all of the, Mm -hmm. the side effects that come with it that like, I don't know, it's. It's just like actually truly encapsulates so much about of, of, of America. A lot of a lot of, uh, you know, private money, private interests getting to do whatever they want. But with like a little bit of like, I don't know, headache from the American regulatory state playing in there. As well. And that's why I think plays into the whole Brett Favre story, yeah. because there were more parties involved than just him and the governor mm-hmm. that made sure this whole thing happened. Um, oh yeah, yeah. it should just mention the new Nancy New, the nonprofit uh, leader of Families First. <laughs> what these families need first is a new volleyball stadium. Um, uh, she was friends with Bryant's wife, and so you know that I mean, that's how this shit works. And uh, for a while, money was easy to get, and uh, Brian's like, "Yeah, we'll hook you up, easy." And then you know, eyeballs started getting on it, and uh, then you know, those kind of relationships uh, went. Uh, sour and um, I guess fortunately for everybody who likes content of uh, Brett Favre's emails as he tries to like get prison labor to make some volleyball lockers uh, someone commented there was a time where there was football without dick pills yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes there was a time where football and all TV had major corporations advertising like Johnson and Johnson and 3M and all these big companies advertised mm-hmm. now it's just dick pills and apps. <laughs> yeah. Like it. It's like the yeah, scene on TV store is constantly being advertised on. <laughs> when you watch in Mexico, do you get a uh, Mexican commercials or, or do you watch yes. like a American broadcast? No, I only have a uh, Mexican TV. So when I watch football, it's in Spanish. That's pretty good. It, it is. It is. I love it because uh, I don't get, uh, I don't get the narrative that you guys get of the storyline. Because mm-hmm. we were talking about this on another show I, I did where I don't think people understand that there's a story editor for sporting events. So it's not like these are natural pans you see. You have to storyboard all this stuff out. Mm-hmm. You know, when this pivotal thing happens, we're going to pivot to this quarterback because he's the leader and we know he's there's a controversy. And we're going to yeah. blah, 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 blah. And, and so, uh, yeah, we, we – got into the whole like i the kind of the kayfabe even of of, of the idea of sports being uh, yeah some even of the narratives that, like, behind them, yeah. i mean hopefully isn't scripted but like uh the broadcast certainly is oh I'm, yeah and and again and the sideline stories these are these are all yeah. things that are planned out well beforehand and there was a scandal that happened in the 80s that i'm sure no one remembers where a uh, a booth operator was just or operator a booth <laughs> Um, announcer was making up stories about players he said he had never met with and coach. And the coach told me the other day that he did That's a bunch good. of pull-up hookers' ass and uh, he's ready for the game. <laughs> 
the so, other advantage you have though, nice. man, is like the Spanish announcers for football are so great. Yes. Like I, they they sometimes put together like the UT Longhorns, um, you know, highlight reels, but they'll have the Spanish language announcers, and it's just so fucking good. Um, and it's not just like a, a cheap imitation of soccer announcing either. It's like very much like it's very particular to the the game too. There's Spanish on the field people, so you know how when they cut to. Mm the on the field reporter that says and he's not at all they he just went in the tent for yeah there's a spanish person that does that as well that kind of f's your head up uh uh-huh. like while wow, they take this really seriously man uh, i need to get into those broadcasts sometimes with you i love to see that it's well like you'll be you i don't know if you're coming down here for mm-hmm. the thing yeah man, that could be i mean um it, it reminds me a couple years ago i don't know why i was in the I was in Europe. I don't know why I'm talking like such a redneck. I was in Europe, right? You're comfortable. And... That's right. Okay. <laughs> You're in a circle of trust. I, I was I was in Europe, and they had. Can't be relatable. Um, I can't remember their names, but the two announcers who do the uh, the Champions League for mm-hmm. soccer, they were like commenting on an NFL game, and it was so good. One, because it's fun to hear sort of British people going on about football, but also they didn't under, really understand the game very well. So like it'd be like you know if you ever watch football, someone who doesn't get it. Right. Mm-hmm. But imagine mm-hmm. if that person also had like a lot of ability to like fill like airtime, like just talking about things that they don't understand. I don't know. I'd love to find it. Like time. they got a cricket announcer <laughs> to do a football game. No, they had, they're talking about this reminds me of like when a, you know, like a midfielder is able to, you know, make a make a 40. Very similar. Halfback yeah. position is very similar to the one. Yeah, exactly. Let me see. Americans would call soccer. <laughs> so, so swift he is. And finally, I don't have (laughs) And finally, David, you wanted to discuss Cuba and the gays. Yes, I did. Um, Seriously, Cuba under Castro does not have the most sterling record with the LGBT community. What is changing on the island? I mean, it's it's truly exciting. I mean, that is obviously a very um, you know unfortunate and dark spot. Something that Castro himself has has apologized. Um, for not as an excuse, but just um, remembering to what was happening in the United States uh, during the same period of time. Again, um, two bad things could be happening at the same time, but um, it is always funny the kind of one-sided memory that people try to have with those things. But I think what what happened in Cuba uh, recently is a real embodiment of a continuation of the revolutionary spirit. I mean, it is an embodiment of you know socialist values that at least myself is fighting for, which is about socialism being um, a movement for, for justice and, and for freedom and for prosperity for people. And in Cuba, um, they held a national referendum um, and same-sex marriage and a whole host of other kind of gender protections and things like that uh, passed with an overwhelming majority, uh, 66% for, 33% against. And uh, I think most notable, what a lot of people are talking about, is that it has changed a lot of the family law so that the Cuban government will now recognize, it opens the door for the Cuban government to recognize uh, same-sex families, which is a really encouraging thing. And it's also very encouraging that this went to the public and they took the position that they did, knowing, for example, in the United States, the way that we have won a lot of our social rights um, has actually come out of the hyper-reactionary um, Supreme Court and all of those rights are under threat, as we've seen with abortion rights being pulled away. Um, very likely um, that there's going to be an attempt uh, to uh, 
overturned the decision that legalized gay marriage in the United States. Um, you know, so it's it's an extremely encouraging event. Um, uh, I, I think that it, it shows um, a lot of what the future is going to look like for Cuba because, you know, there's been this transition for the first time since, you know, the revolution. Cuba is no longer um, run by one of the Castros. Um, so the question has always been, what is that society going to look like? And I find, you know, opening up and, um, you know, embodying a lot of these kind of, of values and fighting for gender and social rights, I think is a very encouraging um, sign about what direction the island is going to be able to take um, in the near future. I brought this up, one, because I think it's something worth celebrating. I think all socials should be very happy to see uh, this happening, um, This, you know, especially uh, with the fact that as um, the church has sort of been reintroduced into Cuba, as a lot of their activities have been, um, you know, legalized and opened up over the past couple of decades, there has been this kind of reactionary, more right-wing evangelical movement that was one of the major forces um, against it. So it's exciting to see that even with those those forces in play now, um, that 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 people are, are are supporting these kind of rights for our you know LGBTQ uh, friends. Um, I did also want to note though because you know um, it's always amazing the way that Cuba gets talked about, even when they do something good like this. I have this uh, right here for y'all. Um, it's from the allotted uh, Human Rights uh, Watch, and they wrote this whole story. Political rights for Cubans should not start with a marriage equality referendum, <laughs> wow. um, which is pretty amazing. Again, you know, when was the last time that we were able to vote on the Constitution of the United States? I don't know. It's been pretty long. I don't think anyone alive ever has had that opportunity. Um, you know, they've had referendums on their Constitution in recent yeah. years. These are high turnout elections. I understand the criticism. I, you know, the the, the democratic system there has issues. Um, I, I don't think it's worthwhile to deny that. Um, but also recognizing, um, for example, limits in, in our country on that. And two, the fact that popular democracy, especially on the federal level in the United States, is completely off the table, right? There is no opportunity to go and say, like, for example, abortion. You know, you look at the poll, I've talked about this on the show before, you talk about polling on abortion. Americans believe we should have abortion rights. Like, that is a vast majority of American uh, of the American population. Um, but because of the political system that we have, instead of it being a question that is decided by the people, it's decided by two political parties. And one of them is much more willing um, to placate a minority position in this country. But I just want to look, I'm not going to read through the whole piece. Um, it is it is a treat. I think we have, um, we have to think of a good quote. Uh, MT Sign, you want to bring that quote up on the screen? Sure. I do have this blocked here, too. But okay. um, I have this yeah, block go here. Ahead read, go ahead and read yours and we'll read ours. But some from the same Sounds good, because this is a this is an excellent one. What would we say if the referendum was about a religious if whether a religious minority could practice their religion openly or whether an ethnic minority should enjoy freedom from discrimination? Uh, this would provoke more outrage. There should be no difference when the right of same sex couples to be free from discrimination is at stake. And again, I'm not going to read through the the whole piece, um, but the the crux here is that um, if you read through the piece, is that basically Cuba is imposing same-sex marriage on the national population, right? By putting their finger on the scales because the government supported this basically means that the vote um, isn't free, which again, is a really laughable um, argument, I think. 
Um, and two, it's a really nasty one to make, actually, because I'm sorry, we are smart enough as people to recognize that there's a big difference, for example, between saying human beings should be able to love whoever they want and shouldn't be attacked by the state for doing so, and stripping people of their civil liberties uh, in order to practice their own religion. I mean, it's just a wild ass uh, yeah. take, frankly. And, you know, this is one of the more egregious ones, but it's been nonstop. I mean, you read BBC coverage, you read NPR coverage, you read New York Times coverage. You see something that's very positive in a world, um, particularly in the West, when we're seeing a lot of these civil liberties under threat. Um, they'd be sitting here and saying, oh, this, uh, you know, Cuba embodying, uh, you know, spirits of, of equality, of um, protections for the LGBTQ community. Somehow we're going to try to find a way to paint that as a bad thing. And in the Human Rights uh, Watch um, argument, it's because the people voted on it and they decided that they think that they should do it. I mean, it, it is truly uh, bewildering. Well, that's the that's – the, because uh, what I interpret that argument to be is they're saying even putting it up for a vote. Yeah, is no, exactly. basically suggesting like, but but that's an argument against democracy, because <laughs> right? Like because, go ahead. Sorry, no, it's because liberals ahead. liberals don't like democracy. Like right. that's that's <laughs> right. really it at the end of the day. They don't like the idea of bringing questions to the people. I'm and I think that of, stuff like I I think like just to say like I think that would be a relevant conversation for like yes. a liberal a technocrat to score over a democratic somebody who's more democratically minded. If it went the other way, but it didn't. So I, okay. Yeah. Well, Pascal, do you have anything you'd like to add to liberal liberals? Liberals don't like democracy. <laughs> so a very interesting point. I have to think through that. Whether I think they like it as much as they can use it for their benefit. Right. Yeah. But there, there's, like the there's a fear. There's a fear of the mass. Like there's a fear of like the mob, right? The yeah. the rabble, Absolutely. the everyday people, and they liked it to be managed. They they don't like the idea of you know a high turnout, ninety percent election. Well, um, and what gives them a warrant to manage is if they're all homophobic or something like that. So I think they also fear the idea of a non like pathologically bigoted uh, population. And I think like those sorts yeah. of folks would have been. No, are way more point, comfortable yeah. discussing like the Chilean outcome than this one. Yeah. And and the Chilean outcome is still is still in flux. I haven't been following Chile, right? They still haven't officially voted on their new constitution yet. No, they did vote on it and overwhelmingly um, uh, voted no. And I mean, I don't know if we want to open up that, but like it is an interesting <laughs> it is an interesting story because um there's a lot there and i don't think i could do it justice in like a minute or so but you know basically it was an extremely progressive constitution but it was also a very wide constitution like as a document um there was a lot of mistrust a lot of clauses a lot of mistrust of the process there was undoubtedly a lot of kind of right-wing misinformation out there um but i think that it's important not to just treat that all as as bad faith i mean for one example you know one of the things in it was that there, there was plurinationalism which is something a lot of people are arguing for it's something that's in the bolivian constitution for example um, which is recognizing indigenous nations and having what they call plurinational society um so you're giving sovereignty and and retaining sovereignty and recognizing the multinational character of, of of these countries but in chile um heavy heavily populated indigenous communities voted against the constitution as well right so i think it's important to recognize that it wasn't there there like hear, hear me out there were people who went and voted no because they're bigots and there are people who went and voted no because of of the process i mean it was it was it was a very weird process i mean you had people going up um 
uh, sort of a lot of maximalists got into the constitutional convention there and they were making a big performance of it, which I think alienated a lot of people. Um, one of the people who was a drafter basically lied to the public um, and presented themselves as if they were dying of cancer um, to basically be like, oh, I am, uh, you know, you know, with maybe I mean, those those are bad intentions when you're lying to people. But with the intention of sort of arguing for universal health care on behalf of like the sick in the country. But again, when something like that comes out, people, I think, understandably had a lot of questions and mistrust of 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 that process. So um, what the what's going to happen next is there's undoubtedly a big desire to redraft the Constitution. Um, what process that will be is still in flux. What kind of Constitution that will be is still in flux. And the right wing is obviously taking the defeat as a mandate for this should be sort of written behind closed doors by politicians um, and not by um, the people. It's 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 a really tragic story because as people know, the Chilean Constitution. Um, under Pinochet was like one of the worst in like the, the kind of embodiment of a neoliberal philosophy. Um, so it's something that you want to be dead. And it's 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 sad to see the opportunity to to shift that uh, be unsuccessful. But I think as the left, basically, like there's a lot of people who are like, oh, well, they're you know, people are too stupid there. They're too bigoted. There's too much hatred, um, you know, and there's people that you can lay that accusation at. But I think that that's the wrong lesson to pull from this. Um, I think that, you know, when you do something like that, you have to be very, very serious um, in how you're engaging with, you know, writing a fu fundamental document for your society. Well, if you guys are enjoying this conversation, then you want to see it live with even more smart people. October 23rd, the Terragram Ballroom in Los Angeles, California. We will be live. Give them a revolution. We'd like to thank you all for listening to this program. And thank you, Matt and David, for coming on. I hope you all enjoy the show. Again, this is going to be a bi-monthly affair. If you haven't done it already, please hit the like button as that helps us get these valuable conversations higher in the YouTube algorithm. Also hit subscribe. It's free and it's so helpful for the growth of left media in general. Also, don't forget, there's VIP tickets for sale. You can hang out with us before. The yes, show. no, and yeah, drink some beers October, with us. October 23rd. The next day, I'm turning 30. So come and help me uh, ring in, you know, year 30 of my life. I wanna, I wanna celebrate with some of our friends. That uh, that sounds like it's gonna be uh, a lot of fun. I actually found this really cool spot. Um, it's kind of. Um, Kind of southern food. I found it in downtown L.A. I was out there with uh, with my son and his mom uh, recently a few weeks ago. It was a real cool spot, and the owner came and kind of hung out with us, and I told him that I was going to be coming back. And I thought, I was like, oh, this would be a real fun place for us to all come and uh, and hang out at uh, before the show. We could watch some, like college great. football and shit and all that good stuff. Oh, actually, it'll be a Sunday, so we watch real football. NFL. There you go. I'm stoked. I'm, I'm really I, – I, I, I have a good time in Los Angeles, so I'm looking forward to it. Well, we're going to have a good time. We're going to have champagne jam. Hell yeah. <laughs> but before we go, a friend of the show and friend in real life, Bertram Cooper, wrote an op-ed essay for the New York Times. And if you haven't seen him on the show before, he was on the reaction show of the Bill Cosby Ain't Your Daddy video essay that we did a few months ago with Torrey Reed. Bertrand's latest piece in the New York Times is an autobiographical tale that describes his life growing up in generational poverty titled... I escaped poverty, but the hunger still haunts me. 
Now, as Pascal can attest to, writing for outlets like Newsweek and the New York Times, the editing process can sometimes alter what the main thesis of what you're trying to convey uh, actually ends up being because they need it to be more relatable to a wider audience. Um, I don't know if Pascal wants to speak on, on his original pieces that he's written for for newsweek but i know as i've read the original <laughs> versions the original drafts they were a little different than the, than the final uh, outcome uh i spoke with bertram a few weeks ago while hanging out with my son in los angeles and we had a long talk about poverty's lasting effects on one's psyche uh and how he actually got out and stayed out sacrifices are sometimes necessary removing yourself from family and friends who are stuck in the same cycle it may seem harsh and counterintuitive to those of us on the left but sometimes the barbaristic reality of capitalism necessitates solutions and slogans that can't we have all these solutions and slogans that we that we say all the time on the left and sometimes um you need to make decisions that might not fall within um, leftist orthodoxy, I guess we would say. Um, and throughout the essay, Bertram paints a very vivid picture of what generational poverty looks like through a child's eyes. As a baby, his father was incarcerated and remained a dark presence in his life. His mother was also dependent on relationships with men, which didn't work out well due to her violent nature and leaving Bertram kind of a victim of, of the circumstance of his family. Uh, and his life is a life that was very reminiscent of, <laughs> of stories of mine and also stories I saw play out where I'm from in Richmond, California. Uh, our conversation a few weeks back explored uh, the dark realities of what it's like to go hungry and be poor, as well as the reality that sometimes it is necessary to turn one's back on their family and friends in order to survive. In this case, though, it's not a Hollywood tale about meritocracy and entrepreneurship. In order for Bertram to move beyond his inner city surroundings, it took more than simply hard work and determination. From This is from his piece in the New York Times. In 1988, 1988 the year I was born, the Census Bureau reported that there were approximately 31.9 million people in poverty. In 2019, the last year before the pandemic, it had grown to 34 million people. According to one study of 20 million children, only 3% of black children born into poverty make it to the upper class, adults whose annual household income is in the top 20%. The fact that I'm, this is Bertram speaking, among that 3% is due to good fortune and unearned talent for tests and the help of strangers, federal grants and low interest loans put in place by people I've never met. Delaying parenthood was vital to my escape, but it wouldn't have happened without access to contraception and abortion, which will be less available to the poor kids coming up behind me. So if you guys have a chance to check out the article, there should be a link in the chat. Uh, and if you're watching the playback on this, there will be a link in the comments. Again, thank you guys for checking this out. Please hit like and subscribe on This Is Revolution and Left Reckoning. If you haven't done it, we appreciate y'all, and we will see you guys in the champagne room. Matt and David, I bid you adieu, and we are Tucson. Out. Wait a minute.
What? Fast. I wasn't ready. I wasn't oh. ready. I thought you wanted me to read something. Okay. <laughs> ready? Okay, now we can do it. And Tucson, we are out.